living above reproach. Look at chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, as we continue walking through this little epistle. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. I want to divide this chapter up, so let's look tonight at 1 through 8. He says, Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now we know that in many of his letters, the Apostle Paul begins typically with a doctrinal section that will be followed by a practical section, usually which is packed full of various exhortations dealing with the Christian walk. And so you can think of it this way. He begins first of all with theology, he will close out his letters talking about ethics. Christian ethics grow out of Christian doctrine or Christian theology. And uh, now this pattern in Paul is somewhat true of 1 Thessalonians, not altogether true, but somewhat true. Uh, the first three chapters have dealt almost exclusively with Paul's personal reflections on the Thessalonians. Uh, remember what he uh, said about them in chapter 1? He remembered their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfast hope. Uh, he recalled how they had received the Word of God amidst much affliction and persecution. And then he goes on also in chapter 1 and particularly in chapter 2 to talk about the ministry that he had among them and how he was like a mother and a father to them. Now in chapter 4, believe it or not, it seems like he's finally getting down to the real business that prompted the letter. And so chapter 4 is going to get his teaching underway. His teaching designed to challenge them in the place where they lived. Now in chapter 4, Paul is going to cover four main topics, uh, three of which they already knew about to some degree. And these topics are going to be sexual purity, love, and work. He says that he had instructed them in these matters when he first came among them and planted a church there. The fourth topic was new to them, and it dealt with the coming of the Lord uh, for his saints at what we sometimes refer to 
as the rapture of the church. So those are the topics he's going to address. Now today, we're going to start in chapter 4 dealing with what he says about sexual purity. Now folks, I've got, to, I've got to be honest and say I can't imagine a more culturally relevant message than what he's saying right here. It ought to be evident to all of us. We live in a sex-crazed culture. Uh, our culture is indulging itself in every type of sexual activity imaginable, and it's not simply being tolerated, it's actually being advocated. Years ago, many years ago, when MTV was so big, at a, at a convention of television executives, the president of MTV was interviewed and asked why his station was such a promoter of immoral and perverse sexual activity. Uh, now some of you here tonight, being an older audience, you may not remember what MTV or realize what it still is. Uh, it's it's a music and video type channel that goes after the younger audiences, right? So anybody in here not aware of MTV? Okay, Marlene has no idea. But anyway, it's a station on TV. And uh, in the past, they have bragged that they're not only babysitting America's kids, but they are raising America's kids. But more recently, when asked why MTV shows some of what it shows, the president said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't it violence that is bad? We don't promote violence. Oh yeah, true. We promote sex. But isn't that a different matter? Sex is good. That's what he said. Now, of course, it's good within the boundary of marriage, right? But he went on to denounce that they were responsible in any way for the declining morals of America's youth. I think most of us would say they do play a part in that. I read a comment from Dr. John MacArthur uh, one time where he stated an alarming fact. Uh, he was talking about this matter of sexual purity and how the church today really needs to be aware of what's going on. And he said specifically that his counseling staff there at his church has told him now when a couple comes to them for premarital counseling, it's just about a given in almost every case. Not every case, but almost a given in most cases that the couple is already active sexually. But folks, in fairness to young people, let me say that this passage is not just about them. Because you see, they're taking their cues from the culture and the adults around them. In fact, I don't know if you realize this or not, some of the highest concentrated rates of sexually transmitted diseases today are actually happening in these senior adult living communities where some of the highest rates are being uh, reported. It's apparent that we're still living in the sexual revolution that began back in the 60s and sex is used today to sell everything from toothpaste 
to cars to hairspray and just about anything and everything else, right? Again, quoting Dr. MacArthur, he says, the freedom of sexual expression is so demanding that it has become the God that in some ways is ruling over all other gods in our culture. To put that in an illustrated form, he writes, we want to allow people sexual freedom at any cost, even if it means they have to kill the product of that sexual union. Therefore, the sexual fulfillment itself becomes more important even than life. We want our sexual freedom even if it means murder of the victim of that freedom. And he goes on to say the underlying philosophy of our time is of absolute sexual freedom to express yourself in any way you want, anytime, with anyone, under any circumstances. And the extent of this is absolutely becoming unimaginable and unthinkable. Now let's look tonight at what God's Word has to say about this. And Paul makes a point here that sexual purity has, has everything to do with pleasing God. Sexual purity has everything to do with pleasing God. Verses 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the topic. And in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about pleasing God. And how, you know, the Bible's clear. We know that one day we'll have to stand before God and give an account of our lives. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, doesn't it? That one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will give an account of what we've done in the flesh. And so we know, folks, that life ought to be about pleasing God, not pleasing man. Now Paul says here with a double emphasis, he says we urge and exhort. Not, do, not simply do we urge, nor do we simply just exhort. But we urge and exhort. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen up folks. Don't miss this. This is important. This is an urgent matter. And he says, we urge and exhort you that you abound in this more and more. Not just more, but more and more. <clears throat> he begins talking about sanctification with the specific application about this being sexual purity. The first thing I want you to see tonight is your sanctification is God's will. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's almost as though Paul is saying, just so that nobody is going to think that what I'm about to say is just my own private opinion, it's not. Right off the bat, I want you to know, we're not dealing in things that are just my opinion. We're dealing with things that have to do with God's will. Folks, what more powerful statement could you find than that? Now, let's think about God's will a moment. 
Let's think about God's will a moment. As I've told you before in the past, there are some things about God's will that can be very difficult to wrestle with. For instance, what if you get two job offers and both job offers are a good match? Which one do you take? Which one is the will of God? That can be a difficult matter to wrestle with, right? And it might even be that God doesn't want you to take either one of those offers, even though both are good and both are a fit. What's God's will in a situation like that? Christians wrestle over that, rightly so. But you know, God's will in other matters can be relatively easy, right? God's will, for example, is that you be saved. James 1.18 In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. God's will is that you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1 I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's God's will that He wants you spirit-controlled. He says in Ephesians 5, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. God's will is that you be satisfied. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. And God's will is that you suffer the gospel. 1 Peter 3.17 It is the will of God that you suffer for a while for the cause of the gospel. God's will that you be saved, that you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, that you live a life that is spirit-controlled, that you be satisfied in a sense of grateful and contented, and that you suffer for the gospel. But we can also say it's God's will for you to be what? Sanctified. He says it right here. Sanctified. Sanctification in general refers to Christian growth. Holiness is the result of sanctification. Now, folks, in one sense of the word, the Bible speaks of it as having already occurred. At the time of your salvation, you were sanctified in the sense of being set apart for His good pleasure. Okay? But in another sense, the word also expresses something that is to be continuing. The Christian life is to be a growing process. We're to be maturing. We're to be maturing in the way we handle the Word of God, in the way we pray. We ought to be maturing in the way that we handle relationships. On and on we could go with that. We should be a people who are maturing, who are growing. You know, Paul says in Romans 8 that it's God's plan for you to be conformed to the image of Christ. God takes His Word and His Spirit and circumstances in your life and daily He's molding you to conform you more and more to the image of Christ. That's God's plan. That's His will. Sanctification is God's will. 
Well, secondly, I want you to see related to this, we are to abstain from all sexual activity that is outside of the boundary of marriage. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, and he makes clear the area in which he's applying it, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the word immorality here is the Greek word poineia. What word do you think we get from poineia? Pornography. It refers in the Bible to all forms of improper sexual conduct. Uh, it, it includes uh, pre, premarital sex. It includes extramarital sex. It includes lesbian or homosexual behavior or bestiality. Any of those forms of things that are inappropriate. <clears throat> now the Bible goes on to have a number of other words to further define some of these conducts. But this word poinia is the broad word that sort of sums them all up, covers them all. Now I want you to notice what the message is here. The message is not moderation. It's not practicing safe sex. What is the message? Abstinence. For the child of God, all sexual misconduct is wrong. All sexual misconduct is wrong. It is not God's will for you. Somebody made the comment in recent years, and this may step on your toes, in recent years in political cycles, when you have an entire political party during a typical election cycle parading out young unmarried women who want their birth control and their abortions all at government expense, they said, I think you see how far off base of God's standard that we've gone. Amen to that. In some circles of the world today, total abstinence is being advocated maybe for pragmatic reasons. Fear of getting... AIDS, for example. The reason here is not pragmatic. It's theological. It's not a fear of AIDS. It's a fear of God. God is a holy God. Now, I want you to keep in mind what a bullseye shot this would have been to Paul's audience at Thessalonica back then. If there was ever a society as immoral and even more so than our society today, it would have been the Roman world and its Greek culture. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians from Corinth. Now, let that sink in a moment. Both Corinth and Thessalonica were known for what? For immorality. Both cities had pagan cults and pagan temples. And in these pagan Greco-Roman religions, the temples of the gods had male and female prostitutes and they believed that if you engaged in sex with the temple prostitutes, it would somehow or another bring you into a greater union with the God that was represented by that temple prostitute. 
One scholar wrote that probably at no time in human history have various vices such as immorality been any more rampant in society than during the days of the Caesars. At least today we have the Judeo-Christian ethic to fall back on. America should know better. They had nothing but pagan religions to fall back on. And their pagan religions encouraged promiscuity. William Barclay and F.F. Bruce point out that immorality was so rampant that a man would generally have a number of women in his life. By the way, the women were promiscuous as well. But I mentioned the following simply to point out the world into which Christianity came in the first century. First off, a man would have a wife. A wife was simply to bear legitimate children and to keep house. Other than those roles, she was basically not there for intimacy. It was also considered proper and legal to have a poine, which was a prostitute. Then on top of that, it was okay and legal to have a paluke which was a concubine. This may be a slave girl that you owned. Also, the men had what they called an atari, which is the word for a mistress. This would be a woman who was a good friend, who was generally somebody who was more like your intellectual equal, your intellectual partner. She was there for conversation. She was also there for intimacy. And so a man would have his wife, his poine, his paluki, and his etery. Men and women both had male and female misters and mistresses. But we're not done yet, believe it or not. Then there were the moikas, who were other married people that you ran around with. And men and women both had these. In other words, we call them today by the name of swingers. Spouse swappers. Swingers. So you had all of that. And again, we're still not done yet. Remember, I mentioned a moment ago, you had the temple prostitutes. Folks, that was the world... <coughs> the gospel went into at Corinth, at Thessalonica, and most of the other ancient cities. Yeah, we still haven't left it yet. We what? We still haven't left it yet. Now we've got sex trafficking with children. Yeah, yeah, we sure do. Yeah. But I hope you see from that, their world, much like what you see going on in our major ungodly places today. Our major cities, all the vices and all the ungodliness going on today. That's the world in which the gospel entered. And Paul says in spite of cultural habits, in spite of your old patterns, the Lord does not tolerate sexual sin. He's saying to the church, you can't live like the world anymore. In Romans 12 too, he said you're not to conform to the world. Folks, from the beginning, 
The Bible says God created one man for one woman and the, the coming together in marriage is holy in His sight. God didn't create Steve for Adam. He created Eve. Likewise, God didn't put Adam with Lisa and Martha and Eve and Betty and Jane. And He didn't put Eve with uh, Bill and John and Joe and Henry. It was Adam and Eve. One man, one woman. That's God's design. And I can tell you, God's design is meant to be fulfilling. Uh, meant to make you happy and holy. Anytime I've counseled with couples who have ignored God's basic design, there's heartache and there's brokenness. Trust me, even recently, I've counseled with couples who've been engaged in things like life sharing and swapping, and, and they're, they're broken. You know, it seemed like fun at first, uh, but now they're messed up. Their families are messed up. They're broken. I, I'm telling you, people come in and tell me things sometimes and say, Pastor, I bet you have never seen a problem like this before in the church. Uh, but here goes. Here's what we're doing. And here, here's what we're facing. Here's what we're dealing with. And you know what? It's gotten to a point that I don't think anybody could shock or surprise me what I hear. <laughs> Hebrews 13 says that marriage is holy and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. In Ephesians 5, Scripture says, But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. He says, don't even let it be named among you. And so what Paul says is that to please God when it comes to sexual activity, you've got to reject all activity that is outside the boundary of marriage. Only sexual activity within the boundary of marriage is pleasing to God. Thirdly, he goes on to point out, we are to exercise self-control when it comes to our bodies. Beginning there in verse 4, he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, depending on your translation of verse 4, whatever translation you're holding in your hand, your copy of the Scripture will either say vessel, that you possess your vessel in honor, or it will say that you control your body in holiness. And this... This is the big, probably, probably the biggest interpretive issue or textual issue in the book of 1 Thessalonians. On the one hand, you have scholars that say what he's talking about here is because of immorality, you know, like he says in 1 Corinthians 7, let each man possess his own vessel, his own wife, and each wife her own vessel, her husband. So it's either talking about a vessel here being one's spouse, or 
that it's other scholars say it's your own body and you know how to control it. I used to think probably he was referring in verse 4 that you know how to control your own body and you do that in holiness. After further study today, I'm leaning more that he was talking about vessel. Let each one possess his own vessel. That is, you have your own wife where issues of intimacy are lived out. Uh, but either way, either way, I think we come out arguing the same thing. Where it's vessel here referring to your spouse or he's referring to your own body. What's his point here? What's he saying? There's to be holiness in the relationship. There's to be purity. Sexual purity. We are to be a pure people. And what Paul is saying here is that to please God in your sexual life, you've got to exercise self-control. Like what he said in Galatians 5, 23 and 24, when he said, Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We are to know how to possess our body in sanctification and honor. We're to be self-controlled. We're not to be controlled by passions like those who don't know God. We're to be controlled by our relationship with God and by what His Word instructs us in. We are never to allow either the culture or our feelings to be what governs our life. You know, the world allows its feelings to control it. The body is in control. If it feels good, do it. There was a horrible song a number of years ago. Horrible song if you think about it. Debbie Boone, You Light Up My Life. It said, this can't be wrong because it feels so right. In other words, what's she saying? Truth is defined by feelings. If it feels right, it must be good. Folks, the Word of God says the opposite. Truth is by revelation of God, not human feeling, because humans are characterized, the book of Romans says, by depravity. We're to allow God's truth, not our feelings, to control us. What's Paul say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6? You need to understand that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you've been bought with a price. He dwells within you. You belong to God. You're not your own. Somebody says, my body is my own. I'll do with it as I wish. If you're a Christian... That's a false statement. Your body is not your own. I mean, even for the unbeliever, their body is not their own. Still belongs to God. They just don't recognize God. But for the Christian, we're to recognize God as the one who, who we belong to. Verse 6, Paul is saying here that when we fail to exercise self-control, somebody gets hurt. That he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. 
You know, in, in the case of younger people, a future spouse might be hurt by revelations of the earlier promiscuity of the one who is now their mate. If you're married, your spouse and your marriage might be destroyed by adultery. And you or your spouse may not be the only ones hurt. Your children can be devastated. Right? So he says, let no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. People get wronged. People get hurt. Lives get destroyed. Marriages and homes get destroyed when people don't listen to the instruction of Scripture here, and they go their own way. And as a pastor, I've seen it time and time again. Fourth thing I want you to say, we're to understand that God will judge those who disregard His commands. God will judge those who disregard His commands. He says, the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before, and solemnly warns you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Folks, I want you to think about that phrase there in verse 6. The Lord will avenge. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Galatians 5, 19-22. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in Revelation 21 verse 8, it says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Folks, is, is this a serious issue we're talking about? It's a very serious issue. It's a very serious issue. 
And as Paul points out in verse 7, God has more in store for your life than for you to live a life of immorality. He's got better things for you than that. And as he says in verse 8, to reject God's instruction concerning purity isn't simply a matter of rejecting men's morals, but it is a rejection of God Himself. But then in verse 8, just so no one can say, it is hopeless, I can't live up to God's standard, what does he say? He reminds us that God gives His Holy Spirit us. In other words, whatever God commands, God enables. Because He gives you His Holy Spirit. Which gives you a strength and a control beyond anything that you possess on your own. Now let me give you some lessons. And just here again, restating tonight basically. Your sanctification is God's will. Your sanctification is God's will. Secondly, sanctification includes what you do with your mind and body. Sanctification includes what you do with your mind and body. And then lastly, the gospel touches all of life. The gospel touches all of life. 